Welcome to All Sides with Ann Fisher. You've probably heard of quiet quitting, whereby an employee does not go above and beyond the call of duty or their job description, performing just enough work to check the boxes at evaluation time. Now the latest buzz phrase is quiet hiring. It's part of a larger lexicon in a post-pandemic work culture. Coming up, we'll drill down into the quiet hiring trend. But first, Washington Post reporter Taylor Telford recently wrote about that emerging lexicon. We'll post a link to her article at WOSU.org slash all sides. Welcome, Taylor Telford. Welcome. Thank you so much. At first, the term was, you know, the big thing was quiet quitting and now there's quiet hiring and quiet firing. Would you explain what the whole quiet part of all this is? Totally. Yeah. Well, for one thing, all of these buzzwords that have the quiet attached are kind of a repackaging of trends that have existed for quite a long time in the workplace. But I think what is happening with these buzzwords is as the workplace is shifting so drastically in the pandemic, we're kind of at a loss for ways to describe uh, all of these new developments. And so in the case of quiet quitting or quiet hiring, uh, what's going on is it's talking about the ways that companies are, you know, experiencing things with their existing workforce. So while quiet quitting is employees who are already employed, employed doing either the bare minimum or maybe even less than what they might have been giving before the pandemic. Uh, Quiet hiring is a super common practice of basically tapping existing employees to take on new roles. And so sometimes that could come with an official title change and a pay change, or it could just be asking somebody to take on, you know, new skills that are or new responsibilities that are adjacent to what they're already doing. I think the key word is quiet because, um, you know, everybody's, you know, who's grown up through a workforce and been working for a few years knows there's always been a quiet quitter out there, always the one doing just enough to get by. It's frustrating, you know, and that kind of a thing. But what I see, what I feel like the big difference is, is these sort of things are being celebrated or castigated, you know, right? One way or the other, it's either thumbs up or thumbs down now, whereas before it was just a fact of life and you just lived with it. Totally. Yeah. I think that overall, like I said, these are things that have been happening for a long time, but they are taking on a different role in the current labor market. Uh, It's been very obvious for a long time now that employers have been super, super hard pressed both to find employees that meet their needs and to hang on to them. The Great Resignation showed us last year that Four million people each month were walking off the job to find better opportunities that better met their needs. And so in the wake of the kind of talent shortages and the talent wars that are going on, employers have been really strapped to make sure that they can keep up their operations and also try and keep developing talent and ensure that you know they can have a kind of retention that won't put them in a really vulnerable situation. What kind of role has social media played in spreading the word on these these tactics? Hmm, That's a good question. I certainly think that that is what has made them so prevalent. If you take a peek on LinkedIn or Twitter or TikTok or anything like that, you'll be certain to encounter these buzzwords all over the place. But I think that social media has more played a role of just increasing awareness of these trends that maybe up until now were things that HR professionals were thinking about, but not your average person. Right. Um, and there's is um, conflict over both of them. Quiet quitting f- is frustrating for 
employers, it's also frustrating for fellow employees who don't subscribe to that, right? Yeah, definitely. I think, to be honest, I think that one gets kind of a bad rap because in some sense, depending on how you want to define it, certainly there are people who are quiet quitting by doing less than their job asks of them. But in some senses, quiet quitting is really just about setting boundaries and not taking on more than, you know, more than your responsibilities, not being endlessly available for those, you know, 11 o'clock emails after you've already worked a full day or, you know, making sure that you get time to decompress on the weekends and that kind of thing. So it really depends. You can understand how people would be very duly frustrated with people who are completely phoning it in and, you know, leaving their colleagues on the hook to pick up the slack and that kind of thing. But then on the other hand, it is reflective of the kind of new boundaries that are cropping up as people are reassessing their relationship to work in this kind of post-pandemic shift. And then the quiet hiring thing, I, you know, I, like we've, you said at the outset, this stuff's been going on forever. People, um, for lack of a better word, grooming employees to move up the food chain, right? Yeah, exactly. To be honest with you, I'm an example of this, if you want to put it that way. I mm -hmm. was covering business breaking news for four years prior to the pandemic, and I did a lot of work covering the ways that the workforce was shifting in that capacity over the past few years. And then last summer, I became the post first corporate culture reporter. So you could call me an example of the quiet hiring. But yeah, certainly it's something that's been going on for a long time. Companies have always been prone to, you know, looking internally to make sure that people are, as you said, moving up the food chain and also acquiring new skills, growing. And you can see the obvious advantages to that. It takes a really long time to interview employees, to search through candidates, to find people that are qualified. And it takes a really long time to train somebody. And in a lot of cases, uh, people who are already working for a company are maybe better equipped to take on those new roles and have that development because they're already aligned with the company culture. They're already onboarded. They already know how all those things work. So you can see why it would definitely be compelling to organizations to consider that option. Yeah. And it sort of dovetails with another trend that's being given a, for a name, career cushioning, where employees try to beef up their skills before they start looking for another job, something they can, you know, show your tool belt and show it's filled with, with, uh, uh, tools. Um, I mean, does that kind of dovetail with the quiet hiring tactic? Yeah, I think so. But also, it, I think it links up with the quiet quitting, too, because the the kind of overarching theme here is that, as I said earlier, employees are really in the midst of reevaluating their relationship to employers and to their jobs itself. And so career cushioning is something that you're seeing happening from people who are in jobs that are dissatisfying to them or maybe are, you know, not giving them an, enough space, not giving them the kind of boundaries that they need. So if somebody's career cushioning, it's because they are trying to make sure that their best equipped to take on a new option that might fit into their life or, you know, be a better a better match for their skill set and what they're looking for, whether it's growth opportunities or having like a better work-life balance. Are they talking, I mean, in, in corporate culture these days, are they actually talking about these things openly or is it just stuff we read in the Washington Post and the New York Times and whatnot that tells us that this is going on? I, I do think that they are talking about this a lot within organizations. Like I said, the labor market has been incredibly challenging for employers for the past couple of years now. And it at this point, it's expected that the kind of 
high rates of churn and turnover and challenges with retention are going to stick around. It's not just going to be something that, you know, was understandably really drastic during the pandemic. It seems like the kind of fallout of the ways that people are rethinking their relationship to their jobs means that maybe people just won't stay at long, as long at jobs. You're maybe not seeing people take one role at a company and then stay there for three decades without ever looking somewhere else. And so with that in mind, I think that companies are keeping an eye on these trends because they're reflective of the ways that employees are kind of reevaluating that relationship. And it's requiring employers to get creative about solutions. Part of the quiet quitting thing became uh, more attainable, more doable, because so many people were working at home, right? Yeah, I think that that's fair to say, although I think that it's also fair to say that somebody could easily do that in an office, too. You know, it's very easy to maintain the appearance of being busy if you're just sitting at your desk, you know, in front of your computer, your boss could walk by and it could look like you're doing something. But overall, I think that it's fair to say that sure be having people working at home you know out of their boss's eyesight or in a position where they're free to explore other opportunities for example free to take calls out of earshot of their colleagues if they are you know interviewing for another job or talking to recruiters or stuff like that it certainly has given some people more latitude to explore those options i'm wondering to what extent or whether you whether you know how this is kind of seeping into the younger workforce because that's what really matters at this point is you know, how much it becomes part of the, you know, the permaculture of the workplace? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think, to be honest, I think that uh, Gen Z's values when it comes to the workforce have really gotten a bad rap and been really misrepresented by a lot of older generations during this period. You hear a lot of, you know, bosses say things like, oh, the young people don't want to come in. But in my experience and talking to Gen Z employees and talking to experts, they're actually in many cases the ones who are the most hungry for that person, like person to person interaction, those growth opportunities, because they had their college or internship opportunities totally upended by COVID. They had, in a lot of cases, they just didn't get to have those opportunities at all. And so they entered the workforce at a really challenging time where they are kind of struggling to adjust in some cases, but they're also really hungry for mentorship, for growth opportunities. They do really want to work, but I think that the difference is their, their priorities are more in that growth and engagement, but also work-life balance is a big priority. And in that case, I think it differs from older generations because pay is often not the highest thing on their kind of total goal when it comes to what they want out of a job and, you know, what they want out of that situation. I would imagine, particularly at, you know, if you're near the C-suite, that you want to be seen. You want to rub elbows with the big shots. That's how you move up the food chain, whether you go somewhere else or not. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why, as I said, the younger workers are often the ones who are actually the most eager in the kind of return to office cases. They really want to be around from around other people and, you know, learn in those in-person interactions, even if it's just the unexpected stuff that comes from running into somebody in the company kitchen or even running into somebody in the bathroom. You never know when, you know, an idea is going to be 
sparked or when you're going to shake hands with the right person who ends up thinking of you for an opportunity down the line. So I think they're kind of sensitive to the ways that they've been shorted of those opportunities because of coming into the kind of forced all remote environment at first. And now they're really eager to kind of get away from that and get their careers moving. Well, I kind of wonder, too, about the importance of that. It, when you can contra- or you know you kind of put it side by side with this whole online dating thing i mean everything's remote you're meeting people sort of remotely before you meet them in real time and people it used to be very common to have work friends definitely yeah i think those all sorts of relationships are suffering because of this kind of shift to remote everything and i think we'll probably see a a kind of proportional backswing to that but at the same time there's no doubt that some things have changed for good one of the things that i've been tracking super closely over you know the past several months or years now i guess is the return to office statistics and it really looks to be that you know the the office occupancy numbers are pretty much flatlining at around 50% of pre-pandemic levels so it's certain to say that we're in new territory now and we're never going to go back to what things looked like before but the ways that people readjust and adapt to this new reality I think have yet to be seen. Taylor Telford thanks so much for your time today I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. That's Taylor Telford she covers corporate culture for the Washington Post she writes about how work uh, works in a fast-changing environment like the pandemic. Uh, we'll have a link to her last article on our website at wosu.org slash all sides. We are going to drill down now into the idea of quiet hiring, what it means, the pros and the cons. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 614-292-8513, or email us at allsides at wosu.org. You're listening to All Sides with Ann Fisher on 89.7 NPR News. This is Chip Brantley, co-host of the NPR podcast, White Lies. Before we found the man in Vancouver, before we sued the State Department, before we snuck into the graveyard of a federal penitentiary, all we had were the photographs. Photographs of a group of Cuban men standing on the roof of a prison in rural Alabama. That's this season on the NPR podcast, White Lies. Welcome back to All Sides. I'm your host, Ann Fisher. You've probably heard of quiet quitting, whereby an employee does not go above and beyond the call of duty or their job's description, maybe falling a little short, in fact, performing just enough work to check the boxes at evaluation time. Now, the latest buzz phrase is quiet hiring. Emily Rose McRae leads the Future of Work research team for Gartner HR. It's a technological research and consulting firm. Emily Rose, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Anne. We talked um, earlier in the segment or in the hour about the fact that this isn't new. Why is it getting scrutiny now? Well, so I think it actually might help a little if I share how we got to quiet hiring as a concept, because why are we even talking about this now? And so every year, Gartner HR releases our trends for impacting the future of work in the next year and beyond. We say beyond, of course, because not every company is moving at exactly the same pace. 
But when we started to look at the incredible pressures organizations are on from a talent shortage perspective, and frankly, even with the layoffs that we're seeing in the tech industry, tech talent is still incredibly hard to hire for. It hasn't made it massively easier. There's still a shortage there. And there's a shortage in almost every kind of role you can think of right now. And then you add in the pressure of a potential recession. So now we're needing to be more careful with our budgets. We need to not spend as much money. Okay, um, how do we do, how do we square that circle? How do we get the talent we need when it's very hard to hire in the first place and also cut costs and also we need to somehow grow. So how are we going to do this? And we realized a lot of organizations were basically doing what we now call quiet hiring, which is if quiet quitting is essentially you lose skills and capabilities, but you don't lose headcount. Quiet hiring would be gaining skills and capabilities without adding headcount. Right. But some people say this is about getting more out of workers without paying them, just saying, hey, this might lead to something bigger and better down the road. In the meantime, we're going to get more out of you than then, and we won't necessarily raise your wages. You know, I have absolutely heard that complaint. And I would say that if that's what someone is getting, then the organization isn't doing quiet hiring well. Because to do it well, remember, we're still in a talent shortage. Do you really want these people to leave? If you make them unhappy, they can go find another job. If their skills are valuable enough that you want to move them from one part of the business to another, their skills are going to be valuable enough that they can make the choice to go to an entirely another or different organization if they want to. So part of the key to doing good quiet hiring is some form of compensation. If it's not raising salaries, it should be maybe a bonus or additional time off or increased flexibility or a promise of no matter what happens with the rest of the year, we're planning on giving you automatically the next level of a rating in your performance review, which usually has some sort of financial mm -hmm. association if it's a private firm. That kind of thing, some sort of compensation has to be arranged. And if the organization doesn't proactively offer it, employees who have been asked to do new roles, particularly shifting to a totally different part of the business, should feel extremely comfortable saying, so what's in this for me other than future long-term career advancement? What exactly are you going to offer me in exchange for this change in my responsibilities? Uh, you're listening to All Sides with Ann Fisher on 89.7 NPR News. We're talking about quiet hiring. My guest is Emily Rose McRae. She leads the Future of Work Research Team in the Gartner HR practice. If you have a question or comment about this, give us a call, 614-292-8513. You can also email us at allsides at wosu.org. And I'm going to go a call from Joe in Sandusky, um, who sounds like he's working for somebody who's doing it the wrong way. Joe, you're on the air. Hi, Joe. Hi, hey, Rick. First, thank you very much for being in this. Oh. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> We're going to miss you, and I hope you have a great replacement. You, you're independent. I love you. Thank you, Joe. I appreciate that. Um, I love it. So who's, take, who's, who's, um, who's messing with you at work, Joe? <laughs> well, I've been, I've been an hourly employee. And given the responsibility of all the salary employees they've dismissed and got rid of. And they love giving me the overtime to do the job to not hire a manager. This has been going on for 10 years now. Wow. This is not new. They take us in, just like the military did. You're a sergeant. You do the job. 
We bring a lieutenant in, and you have to train the lieutenant. That's nothing new. But they give you overtime, but your hourly wage gets 10%, 5%. But you can't hold a starter position if you don't have the degree. Hmm. Oh, interesting. Let me see. I'm seeing some nods from Emily Rose McRae. I want to see have her weigh in. And wow. Okay. So this is exactly one of the reasons that we're talking about another trend in our set of nine that we predicted for 2023, which is pursuing non-traditional candidates. Because if you have these artificial blocks that are keeping folks like Joe from moving up in the organization, even though they are doing the work because you've decided they need a four-year degree, when, let's be honest, the four-year degree is a proxy for something, right? The four-year degree is meant to be a proxy for certain skills or knowledge or whatever it is that you're using it as a representative of. Why don't ask? Why don't you just ask for those skills and knowledge instead of a degree, which is artificially keeping people out of where you want them to be? And this doesn't just happen when it's bringing talent into the organization. It also happens in situations like what your caller has, where they've been in the organization for a long time and they're blocked from moving upwards because of this artificial requirement. And it's a mistake that organizations are making because they will lose really great talent. They will choose to go to other organizations or they will say, eh, I'm not going to try that hard anymore if there's no choice for me. I just, um, Joe, I just want to ask you a quick question. Have you thought about looking elsewhere for a job uh, and taking your skills and your uh, everything you've gained uh, with you? Yes, I have. And the thing that blocks you is, again, you have the skills for, I'm, I'm from the logistics side, which now we call um uh, there's a new name for it now, <laughs> this, this supply chain management. And if, if I've been in logistics for 30-plus years, but yet I'm competing against a college graduate or somebody with a degree who doesn't have my experience, but because I don't have a degree, I'm looked down at or, or I put my, my application in, and you're not even interviewed. Hmm. Yeah, and you went through the College of Hard Knocks to get your experience. Um, Joe, thanks a lot for that call. I really appreciate it. Um, so it's it's not just it's not just internal neglect of your employees on in that regard, but it's external too. You're you're turning it. You're you're, you're suggesting as well, Emily, that you need to broaden your perspective on what experience is. Absolutely. From my perspective, I don't think any organization for internal or external candidates should have degree requirements in their job postings unless it's something that's legally required. And there are circumstances like that. Certifications, that. things like that. Yeah. Right. Unless it's legally required, ask for what that degree is proxy for for you. And then actually test for that in the interview process. So in a situation like Joe's, instead of saying, all right, if you don't have this degree, we're not looking at you. It's what are the specific kinds of knowledge that you want people to demonstrate that you're expecting them to have gotten with a degree, and then ask questions about that in the interview process. If Find you out get if an interview. Don't. Right. But for the manager side of things, they should be asking those questions in the interview process. And a lot of managers are like, I'm overwhelmed. I don't really know how to hire for this. So instead, I'm going to put a degree requirement here and artificially restrict their, their talent pool which of course makes it harder to hire, which is how we get into the quiet hiring. 
the other side of it is these non-traditional candidates, both internally and externally, companies are losing out. Joe, thanks again for that call. I appreciate it. 614-292-8513 or email us at allsides at WOSU.org. We're talking about quiet hiring and and uh, why sometimes if you don't do a good quiet hire and don't do it the right way, you might find yourself with somebody who's quiet quitting because they're getting stuck with all the dirty work. My guest is Emily Rose McRae. She leads the Future of Work Research Team in the Gartner HR practice. Um, what... How do so you say employees can benefit from quiet hiring, but there are they really necessarily empowered to do so, Emily? Do you think? I mean, is that or do you think that's part of the changing culture of the workforce? That's one of the major changes that have happened over the last several years. And it's really interesting because even now I can talk to leaders, and when I talk to them, some of them haven't made this have not accepted that the markets have shifted and the perception of labor has shifted. But when you think about how many people left the workforce over the last several years in the United States, we're talking hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who said, you know what? No, I'm not going to work. It's actually better for me in my life to not be part of the workforce. Maybe I have a spouse who's working. Maybe I have a family member. Maybe I have a friend and we're pooling our resources, whatever it is. It actually works better for me to not be employed that's a major shift. And for employers to realize that there are this many people who may not ever come back to the workforce, but especially not if you're not going to give them what they need. Do they need more flexibility, more adjustment? It's a massive shift for employers from we control you and your lives. And especially when you think about like outside the nine to five, is that or whatever your schedule is, but outside of the 40 hours a week, we're expecting you to work. We also expect you to be doing things that make you ready to work. And, you know, we might say, hey, you shouldn't have that side job, even if it's totally unrelated, because we want you to be productive during your 40 hours. Now there's a greater understanding of, well, you don't really own my time outside of the hours I'm working for you. And so you don't get to decide if I can do something or not in my personal time. And that's actually a huge shift that is representative of the shift of how people are thinking about employers and how employers are trying to adjust to this new reality that people no longer have this exchange with employers. Something that's endemic in what I do is I'm constantly reading and staying abreast of current events. It's what I've done for my entire career, right? It's just part of what I do. I get up. The first thing I do is I check all my links to all the you know the newspapers I follow and all the all the whatever I follow, and I I feel like I have to do that um, to be ready. But I don't count that um, in my 40-hour work week. I just feel like it's a profession I chose, and I have to be like that to do well at what I do. Mm-hmm. Is that going away? Um, Maybe a little bit, because maybe there's a little bit more like, well, if this is time towards work and should be compensated for it. And in fact, if you were hourly instead of salaried, which I'm making an assumption here, but mm-hmm. you would, they would actually be required by law to in the United States to, if you're doing work, if you're doing things that support your work, you have to be paid for them. If you're doing work on scheduling, that actually should theoretically be work that is compensated. And so that puts us in a really interesting situation where people are saying, yeah, I'm not really necessarily willing to say I'm not going to do X because it might impact my work. In part, because we found that it doesn't. A lot of the things that we were told might impact our work don't impact it. Turns out people who work remotely or a hybrid schedule 
as productive, if not more so, than people doing the same role working in the office. Whoa, okay. So it turns out it doesn't matter that we're in the office. Okay. Um, people working flexible schedules, way more productive than people who are working a prescribed nine to five where that's possible. Oh, wow. Wait, so it doesn't matter the hours we work. It doesn't matter where we work. It's about what we get done. And that's a massive shift to go from, well, here's what I expect of my employees during the hours that I expect them to be working in the space where I can just look over and see what they're doing to I'm going to be measuring my team or my my business's productivity based on their performance and just judging whether they're getting things done the way they need to be getting things done. And if they aren't, then it's a conversation. Is Are you concerned about anything slipping through the cracks? Like people with incredible soft skills that you might discover, you know, that person maybe isn't great at data analytics, like, you know, that's what they got their degree in or whatever it might be. But boy, they're great with people. They would be great, you know, in HR. You know, I, I'm just kind of uh, spitballing right here. But could, could anything be falling through the cracks in this kind of new paradigm? So that's a great question and a really great thing to sort of push on and look at, because one thing that could potentially fall through the cracks is not necessarily that skills, because we'd hope that you're picking them up. So maybe someone's not performing at X and Y, but you're able to say, you know what, you are really amazing at the soft skills. So your data analytics is sort of medium, but you are amazing at soft skills. And so we want you to do a rotation over in HR and just check it out and see what you think. Um, or we have a really strong business need for in sales right now. Would you be willing to do a rotation as a sales team member? Let's see how it goes. It's not a permanent position. It's just for six weeks. And then we can use that to make some decisions. But also when you're doing all of this, when you're moving people about the organization to maximize the impact that they're going to have, you also have to be paying attention to how you're doing it because either through the compensation side of quiet hiring or even with who you ask to do the rotations, you might end up in a situation where you're actually messing with the organization's equity and inclusion and hurting inclusion outcomes. How so? So what if say, you move several people from an HR and marketing team. This is an example I use a lot for this. You need data scientists. You decide to move some HR analysts and some marketing analysts over. They can't do the whole set of responsibilities, but they can do some of them. And you're either going to train them on the responsibilities they haven't done before, or you're going to redesign the work so that other employees or uh, contractors can do the parts that they're not as strong with. Well, what if all of the people you move over are men? And so suddenly you have a gender divide. And also those men are getting paid more because they're doing a new, more complex role. So now you also have a pay equity issue. So you need to sort of pay attention as you're doing this. What are the ramifications of the decisions we're making? But don't, isn't that something that hiring people they're already paying more attention to those kind of things and looking for, uh, you know, uh, diversity and, and, and think work thinking about equity more? Oh, absolutely. As organizations are hiring, most organizations are paying attention to 
what kind of diversity can we get in our workforce? Because there's so much data that shows that that is a high value proposition for it, because all organizations. It, it, it's good. It's a good right. thing. Right. We get better results. Right. We get more thoughtful production of what whatever it is we're making. We get better ideas. We get more innovation. We also just have a much better understanding of our client base, whether we're a government organization or private sector or nonprofit. You understand the people you are trying to serve better when you represent them in your workforce. But when we start to move people around, we start to run into trouble. Because if you look at the statistics, even if a workforce has a really good distribution by gender or race or ethnicity or age, as a whole, it often does it by level. And especially after the pandemic and the childcare crisis that came with that, the ch consequences of the childcare crisis have been disproportionately borne by women. And as a result, we're seeing quite senior levels of women dropping out of the workforce for childcare reasons or elder care family support reasons mm -hmm. at a disproportionate rate to men. And what that means is that we're actually seeing a major impact on our the, the diversity from a gender perspective of our leadership pipelines. And so even if your organization is actively thinking about diversity when hiring, you still have to be thinking about equity and inclusion impacts when you're making these internal moves. And not, and I, I guess I want to just underscore this because of what's going on in some states as far as equity and inclusion goes. The idea is not to do it because you're checking a box. It's because it's better for the company. It's so much better for the company. The data on this is mind-blowing. We are seeing significant improvements for organizations that do have diverse workforces. And it's not just a, oh, well, people are a little bit happier or you know, we aren't getting sued as much. Um, and that's, you know, reducing our costs. And mm -hmm. so we're happy. Massive changes in the amount of innovation and in the value perceived by customers and in the quality of the overall performance of the organization. You can see it in the numbers that it is a, it's critical to successive organizations to have a diverse workforce. You know, when we're talking about this, and I know I have to let you go, but I'm just, it's making me think about sort of that question you get, or I, you, I hear you get at a lot of um, job interviews is, what's your five year, what do you think you'll be doing in five years? And it's, Put into the context of this conversation, it seems a lot more thoughtful and relevant because that way you're kind of saying at the outset, what would you like to do? What maybe we could help you achieve that instead of trying to figure out if you're going to ditch us in, in, in two and a half or three years kind of a thing. Exactly. 100%. In fact, one of the things I really encourage organizations to do is if they have a lot of frontline workforce that might end up having to have their jobs replaced by automation at some point in the near term, or some of the major tasks replaced by automation in the near term, tell people about that. It's actually a two-way street. You're asking for their five-year plan. They should be able to ask for yours because then you can have a real conversation about what comes next. Mm. And everyone knows this is coming. So just be honest about it and say, this is our plan. This is what we're going to do. Emily Rose McRae, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. Emily Rose McRae leads the Future of Work research team in the Gartner HR practice. We are going to talk more um, about uh, the pros and the cons of uh, quiet hiring 
uh, in the context of this generational cha- or this change, uh, this momentous change in workforce environment and in, in corporate uh, workforce environment. So if you have a question or comment, want to share your story, 614-292-8513 or email us at allsides at WOSU.org. You're listening to All Sides with Ann Fisher on 89.7 NPR News. This is Chip Brantley, co-host of the NPR podcast, White Lies. Before we found the man in Vancouver, before we sued the State Department, before we snuck into the graveyard of a federal penitentiary, all we had were the photographs. Photographs of a group of Cuban men standing on the roof of a prison in rural Alabama. That's this season on the NPR podcast, White Lies. Welcome back to All Sides. I'm your host, Ann Fisher. You've probably heard of quiet quitting, where an employee does not go above and beyond the call of duty or their job description, and sometimes even falling short, performing just enough work to check the boxes at evaluation time. Now the latest buzz phrase is quiet hiring. George Nagel is a former global executive and author of a series of books centered around strategy, cultural and culture engagement, and creative innovation and productivity. Welcome to the show. And thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Quiet hiring isn't new. It's kind of as old as time. You see somebody, you know, you know, uh, to the left of you, to the right of you, and they're showing signs of uh, maybe being able to move up the food chain. So you start promoting them, right? So that's how one class of people will view it, right? Um, you know, in the per progressive world, that's actually a positive for not only the employer, but the employees when it's done deliberately, right? We call it succession planning, right? There's a reason that we actually plan for it. The other side of quiet hiring can be when people are just getting robbed from one department to go fill in for another department because the prioritization of upper management has suddenly changed. And now they recognize that they're in a lull and they're not going to be able to hire somebody for nine to 12 months, given their current practices. What does that mean, given their current practices? Right. So the average right now for hiring is estimated for anybody above entry level to be a nine-month process from the time that they kick it off until they get somebody in the door. If your prioritization for a given year has suddenly shifted, well, that's three quarters of the year, you're certainly not going to be able to hit that goal if it takes you that long to bring somebody in. So the easier route is to get somebody that's pretty close already internally to what you're looking to do and bring them in from a different department and have them work on that role. But that has a lot of consequences that tend to be really negative for a company. So let's talk about what's the biggest negative on that score. The biggest negative is systems build systems and companies build on systems and then they build on patches for systems. So that means, you know, people typically, and this is where quiet quitting really became a thing, are already running at full tilt, right? Their plates are already full. That means all of the other business entities or departments are relying on them to do something. So if you take somebody, and I'll give an example out of the marketing group, 
and suddenly put them into sales. Well, who's doing what that person was doing in marketing? The rest of the marketing department that's already full? Probably not. It's going to fall off and fall between the cracks. And I can tell you the people that tend to get pulled tend to be the most flexible, the most adaptable. They tend to be the harder workers. And they're the ones that have all of those little nuances that they know that nobody else knows about. It's what keeps the ship afloat. And if you don't have that, oh, you're going to start see. springing some holes. Really so, fast. right. I see the, 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 the benefit they bring to the next, pay, the next chapter is a benefit that's lost in the previous. Yeah. I mean, it's the same it's the same analogy of, you know, people that unfortunately, and this is quite common, that live off of their credit cards, right? They're robbing Peter to pay Paul. They don't have a plan beyond the immediate on how they're going to actually get out of that debt or what's going to fall off in order to fulfill that debt. The same thing happens in businesses when we don't prioritize and then more importantly, and communicate, this is the priorities that are coming because most companies don't do that. They just say, hey, hey, Ann, I need you to come fill in in this position. It'll only be a couple of weeks and it turns into a couple of years. Mm -hmm. um, what else? What are some other downsides? Well, the biggest secondary downside would really come from crushing people's creativity. Hmm. So if you are now running full tilt to drive something that has become a sudden prioritization, I like to call it chasing the shiny new thing, right? If you're chasing that and that's all that you're focused on, you don't take the time because you're running full tilt to take a step back and say, how can I think about this problem differently? How can I approach it in an innovative way that may actually solve not only the immediate prioritization need, but also be able to help push the company into a better position for the position I just left. Has, we have the time. Go ahead. Well, I, I'm just wondering these kind of things, these sort of seem like from a non-HR point of view to be HR 101. And I'm wondering if the pandemic and all of the change that's been brought about because of that has forced human resources to be more thoughtful than they had to be before. I would say that it actually lessened some of their thoughtfulness past the initial onslaught of what are we going to do when half of our workforce is office workforce and we can't bring them in. I'm not talking about obviously the manufacturing teams, right? Mm -hmm. That's lessened that because people's natural adaptability came into play. And here's the fun part. When everybody had to adapt, they did it well because they knew the prioritization was just make your job work. Now, what happens when you figured out a way to do that and you and one of your coworkers is suddenly pulled to a completely different team and expected to perform at the level that you're just performing at? And this often happens, that old department, they're going to still ask you for things, they, they, right? And it's always the big things. And it's always the things that are so big that if you don't do them, it may shut the entire department down or the company. Because if it's HR and it's somebody moving from payroll over to uh, accounts receivable, and that happens quite a bit because it's all the money stuff, right? Everybody wants to get paid. We can't just be stealing people from payroll. So you have to be more, th I mean, I guess the question is then to what extent you have to be more thoughtful about who you decide to move around now because they could move away <laughs> because they don't feel like moving around. Uh, and also you're leaving, you're taking a, a, a strong link out of 
another department that without thinking about how you're going to replace that energy. Correct. I mean, that, that is what it comes down to is the, the missing link. Uh, I like that uh, term. And, and if you don't have a way to replace that link or strengthen it, the chain's going to break. And it usually breaks in ways we don't normally anticipate. And sometimes we can't even anticipate it. You know, um, my my last guest, Emily Rose McRae from uh, Gartner HR Practice, I, I thought made an in, an interesting point about the sort of proxy requirements that businesses have for hiring. Like they don't want to go through a bunch of uh, resu- re- resumes. They just so they immediately um, screen out anybody without the you know the MBA or or whatever it might be instead of thinking about what do I really want. Um, and kind of broadening the search to maybe people who are very experienced on their team already, but don't have the, um, you know, the the degree or the specialized certification, and and maybe they could go out and get it, uh, but they kind of look away from them instead of hiring them for their or promoting them for their experience. Right. Well, so there's two two things into that, right? So if it's a promotion, I would hope that it's actually thought out and they've actually planned for that. And I can tell you the companies that are the most creative, the most innovative, they plan deliberately for succession. Like it's not even a question so that when things like this come up, right? If I, if I were being promoted or considered to be the next VP and a new division just suddenly started and we need somebody to direct it. Okay. Maybe that's a really good stepping point for me, but there's already a succession, not only for me to move up, but for somebody to fill in my position. And then you get down to the entry level, which tends to not always be so mission critical, and you're filling that position. That's the backfill. Okay, that that's a good plan, right? Because now it's been thought out, as you were alluding to. Mm-hmm. But when companies are automatically setting these screens and they're eliminating people, that's where their process really gets in the way. And I'm going to tell you, and I, I know we're in a tight economy. But if you have a prioritization that's requiring you to quiet higher within your within your team and your belief, and it's a belief, is that you have a nine to 12 month hiring process, why don't you double the salary and see how fast you fill it? And I know most companies will say, well, we can't do that. We can't afford it. Then my immediate pushback to that is, well, how big of a priority is it really that you're about to cause this dynamic change in your organization without communicating it clearly and allowing people to have a strategy to fulfill what they're doing now. Right. So therein lies the the, the issue of pro- quiet. Um, why not make it public and say, we're looking for this. That's Who right. among you is interested? And here's the carrot. That's correct. I, I'm a... I'm all about, you know, that cultural engagement, that communication, especially of strategy. Um, I can tell you the companies that are very deliberate in how they communicate their strategy and they keep it to really three talking points. And that's all you ever hear from upper management are those three talking points. They don't have these problems with quiet hiring. They have problems of bringing in enough entry-level people to actually be able to move forward with the next prioritization that comes up because everybody already knows the plan and they're, they buy into the plan because they want it too. Let's see, Emma in Delaware, you're on the air. Hi, Emma. Uh, good morning. Hey, so I just recently have experienced a situation where 
uh, one of our most talented um, you know, managers was really doing a ton of really good work, a lot of high-profile projects. And then there was another round of um, promotions, and this individual did not get promoted. And other people who did get promoted were not working on any of these high-profile projects that were quite successful. So I uh, talked amongst my own colleagues, and we're all like, well, why should the rest of us even bother if the most – um, you know, the most successful person amongst us is not getting promoted. Um, do you ever see that kind of scenario and how that crushes the spirit? Hmm. Interesting. Thank you, Emma. So, Emma, that's a fantastic point. And what I heard, right, from my experience is that person was doing such a bang-up job on those top priorities that the company said, we can't afford to move them out because we know we don't have somebody that's going to come in and sustain those top priorities and those top projects like this person is. And that happens quite often, unfortunately, where people are especially made to believe that they have this next thing and it just goes away because they're doing too good of a job in it. That's called bad planning by management. Huh. Uh, and, and it's that's that's a morale problem at that point. It absolutely is, yes. Well, George Nagel, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And great conversation. Uh, thank you so much. George Nagel is a former global executive and author of a series of books centered around strategy, culture, and cult- business culture engagement, creative innovation, and productivity. We'll have a link to his website at wosu.org slash all sides. Uh, that's it for now. Thank you so much for joining us. This is All Sides with Ann Fisher on 89.7 NPR News.